Hello, everybody. This is Opposing the Matrix. You got Dave here, and I'm doing a solo show again. Um, just got finished uh, about three hours ago doing a show with Jim and Eric. And I feel that this subject is so uh, controversial but so important that it needs to be addressed immediately. Um, and after I'm done, <clears throat> I think you'll see why. Uh, Jim and I had a conversation the other day. Um, Jim and I are both under the opinion that uh, we had uh, the COVID, uh, the COVID, um, well, let's say infection. It's not really a disease, it's an infection. Or there was a two different things, but um, mine was back in January and his was, his was a little later. Uh, we both came down with uh, different things, even though we live a couple thousand miles apart. We came down with um, similar but different things and uh, different from any other flu or virus that I've ever had. And I just wanted to touch on that. And uh, Jim is being tested currently to see if he has the antibodies for the COVID. And uh, we'll see what happens with that. But um, my question is, and it's growing increasingly more of a question every day, is this thing really a virus? It has some of the earmarks of a virus, but it also has the earmarks of a bacterial infection or a protozoal infection. And I will go into that real quick. Um, first, I think we need to do a little bit of um, definition uh, producing here so that we understand things. Okay. We know that the three basic things, the three major things that cause infection in human beings uh, that, that we can pass on from one to another <clears throat> are bacterial, protozoal, or antiviral. Really, protozoal comes from other organisms that pass it on to us. Um, I think it's the Anopheles mosquito that spreads malaria. Malaria is a protozoal infection. Um, bacteria, what are bacteria? They're single-celled animals or single-celled, let's just say they're single-celled entities. Um, there are some people that want to call them animals. Some want to call them uh, plant life and others that want to call them a mixture of both. Protozoa, um, what are they? They're multi-celled uh, entities. Um, both of these things are alive. Bacterium are alive and so are, pro, so are protozoa. Okay. And we have vi uh, viruses or viri is uh, the correct way to say it. There's really no such word as viruses, but it's become a very uh, acceptable way of saying things nowadays. So anyway, uh, viruses are not alive. They're a combination of, of different things, uh, proteins, amino acids, and things like that. And somehow they have um, some sort of way of knowing how to operate. It, they're very uh, mysterious things. And, and um, you know, science is still, there's some scientists still scratching their heads trying to figure it out. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did something called the COVID-19 and the 5G connection, where um, I speculated that uh, COVID-19 could be turned on by radio waves and that, that it's an awful funny coincidence that uh, um, the areas that are experiencing the highest numbers of COVID uh, infections and deaths are areas where 5G has been implemented and implemented heavily. Uh, one of the first ones to go live was Wuhan, China. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, um, when you're fighting antibacterial, well, when you're fighting bacterium, um, you got to realize that there there are two different agents. Uh, there's some agents that are called bacteriostatic and some that are called bacteriocidal. Bacteriostatic uh, 
compounds uh, interfere with the reproduction of the bacteria, basically. Um, the bacteriocidal, uh, just like you would say suicide or homicidal, means death. It, it actually causes the death of the bacteria. And it's awful interesting that Zithromax is a, is a kind of a derivative of erythromycin or in the same family. Um, it's also called azithromycin. You've probably seen that in the um, in the news. It's one of the uh, combination drugs that's used along with Plaquenil to, uh, that many people have used to get rid of this COVID-19. Um, okay, so uh, protozole. Let's look at protozole things. You have anti-protozole medications and Remember that uh, protozoals are multi-celled uh, entities. Um, you got protozo protozostatic and protozocidal compounds. Plaquenil, I believe, is a protozocidal. It's also known as hydrochloroquine, and you've heard all of the um, the major players out there either for or against hydrochloroquine. It's interesting that Bill Gates and the other people that are trying to promote a vaccine are anti-hydrochloroquine people. People like President Bush, or excuse me, oh, Lord, forgive me. Um, if you ever listen to this, President Trump, forgive me, okay? Um, but President Trump has been on hydrochloroquine for a while now. It's one of those drugs you can take for a long time. Malaria patients take it constantly because you really can't get rid of malaria. Um, so anyway, the uh, protocidal um, causes the uh, cells to... Uh, I do believe that it causes the cell walls to actually um, disintegrate, thus destroying the cell, the uh, protozoa that's uh, infecting. Um, the antivirals, they, they fight viruses by um, helping the body's immune system to recognize the camouflaged viri. Um, interesting thing about viruses or viri. Um, what they do is they enter the body and then they'll go into a cell. And because the body will naturally try to destroy anything foreign that goes into the body, uh, virus, a virus will enter into a cell and actually take on the RNA characteristics of, a, of, a, of, a, of that cell. And when it comes out, the body doesn't recognize that it's a virus. It takes the body a little while to kind of figure it out. It eventually does. And it fights the uh, if you've had the flu, uh, you know how that goes. Um, the body fights it, and then uh, it goes away eventually. Um, if it's really bad, they do have some antiviral drugs that you can take. They didn't a few years ago, but they do now. Um, so, like I said, they hide inside the cell, and they become camouflaged. And it'd be kind of like if uh, if you uh, went into uh, a masquerade party, and let's just say the theme was 16th century garb. And you went and dressed like you would normally, you know, nowadays. And you went into a closet and put on 16th century garb. You uh, you would fool people until you started talking or they'd see your mannerisms. Then they'd figure out who you are. And that's what always happens when you go to those things. So anyway, that kind of gives you an idea what those things are. And it should be noted and it should be definitely enforced that um, drugs that are, well, let's say antibiotics, and antiprotozoics do not fight viruses. Okay? It's impossible for them to fight viruses. And antivirals aren't very good at fighting bacterial infections. As a matter of fact, they don't. So, you know, a lot, um, there was a great concern. <laughs> I worked in a pharmacy years ago, and uh, the minute you got sick, the uh, pharmacist would want to give you some amoxicillin. 
Well, that's good if you've got a bacterial infection, but if you've got a virus infection, that's that's that could be very seriously dangerous to you because um, what happens when you have a virus, your body becomes immune compromised, and the bacteria that you have in your body, uh, all over, well, mostly in your digestive system, uh, but in other places of your body also, um, you have good bacteria and bad bacteria, and in a healthy individual, these two things keep each other in check. Uh, if you have a, a certain amount of good bacteria and bad bacteria, they kind of fight against each other, and there's always an equal outcome, uh, a detente, so to speak, within your body, um, that neither one's really a winner. Um, and they realize, I think, that there's mutual assured destruction, so they don't try anymore. But anyway, um, so um, if you if you have the flu or you have some kind of virus and you're taking antibiotics, um, you're killing antibiotics don't distinguish between good and bad bacteria. They fight all the bacteria. OK, so if you're destroying the good bacteria and you're not destroying the bad bacteria, the bad bacteria are going to take advantage of that and you're going to get sick. Um, that's why people that have AIDS, which is a viral infection, have to be very careful around people being around people that are sick because they can pick that up really easy. Um, and uh, viral infections often go into uh uh, the body of a, an AIDS patient and uh, and recapping and many times the result is death. So you see, there's you got to be careful when you're talking about this stuff. Now, um, we have this guy out there named Bill Gates, and he's trying to make a a vaccine. We'll read more about it later. Um, that he wants everybody to take, and he wants laws passed that everybody has to take it. Um, but if COVID-19 is not a viral infection, but a bacterial infection, and I think Billy Boy knows that, then why is he trying to get us all to take it? Is there something else that's going on that we don't know about? And again, we'll read about that later. But um, And another thing we're going to read about is a man named um, Frederick Lamont Gates. Okay. Uh, let's see. So far, I have not been able to make a connection between Frederick, Frederick Lamont Gates and Bill Gates. They don't seem to share any relatives, but you know how uncles and aunts and everything are. You know, there could be a, a distant uncle or distant aunt, but it's also, it's it's just funny how Bill Gates um, wants to, says that he wants to reduce the population of the earth and he wants to make this vaccine and how Frederick Lamont Gates, uh, we'll read later, um worked for the Rockefeller Foundation and may be responsible for starting the uh, epidemic that killed so many back in 1917 and 18. That's currently known as the uh, the Spanish flu, but it may not have been the Spanish and it may not have been a flu. So, excuse me. Okay, so this Frederick Lamont Gates, and I'm going to throw these names and dates and people out here. Uh, one of you is going to read this and one of you is going to want to investigate like I'm investigating. One of you is going to want to find and will find, I'm sure, a connection between Bill Gates and his Frederick Lamont Gates and his father, which was also a Frederick Gates. Um, you're going to find a connection between him and Bill Gates, and we're going to know that uh, this family was born to perdition and they were born to uh, basically be genocidal in nature. Um, so Frederick Lamont Gates, he graduated um, from Yale. Uh, you're not going to believe how I got this. I was just looking up this man, Frederick Lamont Gates or Frederick L. Gates, and all of a sudden this link came up where uh, it had uh, 
the obituaries of everybody from uh, in a certain year group, uh, I think it was up to 1933 and all the way back to 1900, uh, of all their um, alumni that had gone there but had passed away. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. And I'm talking about notable people, not every alumni, but everybody that ever made anything out of themselves. So anyway, Frederick Lamont Gates uh, graduated from Yale in 1909. He was born December 17th, 1886 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He died June 17th, 1933 in Boston. His father was Reverend Frederick Taylor Gates, um, who had a BA from the University of Rochester. He got that in 1877, an MA or Master of Arts in 1879 from Rochester Theological Seminary. Um, 1880, ULD University of Chicago, 1911. A Baptist minister, businessman, and benevolence manager for John D. Rockefeller president of Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research, chairman of General Education Board, son of Reverend Granville Gates and Sarah Jane Bowers, uh, that was her maiden name, uh, Sarah Jane Bowers Gates of Maine. Uh, it says Maine, New York. Uh, let's see, mother was Emma Lou Calhoun Gates, um, daughter of Lyman Hall and Cordelia Lucinda Teague, T-E-A-G-U-E, Calhoun of Racine, Wisconsin. Um, Montclair, New Jersey High School, attended University of Chicago in 1905, is a member of the class of 1909. Um, interesting, he had his son. Uh, oh, never mind. Okay, entered um, Yale as a sophomore. Andrew D. Uh, White Prize in History in his sophomore year. Phyllis, okay, this is one of the longest words I've ever seen. Philosophical oration appointment and honors in physic, physical sciences in his senior year, member of the university orchestra, Alpha Delta Phi, Sigma Xi, I guess it is, and Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, he got his MD at John Hopkins in 1913, member of Alpha Omega, uh, Alpha Omega Alpha, connected with the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, New York City, 1913 to 1929. As a fellow, 1913-1914, assistant in Department of uh, Physiology and Pharmacology, 1914-1917, associate, 1917-1921, an associate member, 1921-1929, had since been research fellow and lecturer in the Department of Physiology at, page change, Harvard, member of the China Medical Board of Rockefeller Foundation. This is all this uh, Frederick. Uh, L, okay, uh, again, member of China Medical Board of Rockefeller Foundation, 1916 to 1929, and of its commission to China, 1915, commissioned a first lieutenant, the Medical Reserve Corps, uh, the Army, um, April 17, 1917, assigned to the base hospital at Fort Riley, Kansas, keep that in mind, December of 1917, and to Camp Taylor, Kentucky, in November of 1918. Received discharge January 18, 1919. Contributed to Journal of Medical Research, Journal of Experimental Physiology and Science. Member of Harvard Society, Optical Society of America, Society of Experimental Physiology, and American Association for the Advancement of Science. Okay. He married in uh, September 11, 1917 in Duluth, Minnesota to Dorothy Olcott. Um, Let's see, B.A. Smith, 1913. Oh, a Bachelor of Arts, Smith, 1913. Um, 
Master of Arts, Columbia, 1917, daughter of William and James Alcott, uh, who was a, um, a PhD, uh, University of Michigan, 1883, Masters of Science, 1884, Honorary Masters of Arts, 1908, and Fanny Billy Olcott. Okay, children. Um, Olcott, Barbara, Frederick, Taylor, um, and Dorothy, and Deborah, and Deborah, death due to fractured skull. We're still talking about uh, Frederick here. Death uh, due to fractured skull and brain hemorrhage. Cremation took place. Survived by wife and five children, uh, three brothers, um, Franklin H. Gates, um, Russell C. Gates. Okay, I guess Franklin H. Gates was 12, Russell C. Gates, 14, and Percival T. Gates. Um, he got a Bachelor of Arts at Yale College, 1919, I guess. University of Chicago, 1920. I uh, can't be right. Anyway, and three sisters, Alice Gates Purdy, wife of William K. Purdy, uh, MD of Colum uh, Columbia, 1917, of Montclair, New Jersey, uh, Lucia Hooper, wife of Leverett F. Coop, uh, Hooper, um, Bachelor of Arts, Harvard, 1915, and of New York City, and Grace Gates Mitchell, wife of, uh, says Mourns R. Uh, Mitchell, Bachelor of Arts, University of Delaware, uh, of Montclair, and that's as far as it goes. So, anyway, you see, there's, these people are a bunch of brainiacs. Um, seems like everybody in the family went to college, which back then was, you know, you knew the family had money if they did that. So, seeing that Daddy worked for um, for uh, John Rockefeller, it's no wonder that he had money. Uh, John probably invested a lot of money in putting his kids, uh, the Gates kids, through school. Um, very interesting. So if anybody's out there and they got that information, um, I'm going to keep a copy of this so you can email me, uh, email me at, um, uh, Haganah 007, that's H-A-G-A-N-A-H 007 at protonmail.com. And I'll shoot you off a copy of this, uh, I'll make a PDF of it and uh, shoot it off to you if anybody wants to, wants to do further research into whether this guy is related to our modern-day Bill Gates, who will someday soon be um, in the same ranks as, uh, well, he's already in the same ranks of uh, Mengele, but um, he's shooting for uh, chief executioner to millions or billions of people if, if this uh, vaccine is allowed to proceed. Okay, so we went into what a bacteria is, what a protozoa is, how you get rid of them, or at least control them, as in the case of malaria. Um, and there's a lot of information out there about if antibiotics viruses, which is no. Uh, one note I just want to make is that there are some antibiotics that fight uh, protozoa and, and vice versa. So, and But we're dealing with uh, agents that are fighting living organisms here. And as I said earlier, the virus is technically not a living organism. It's more of a, a protein chain that uh, gets together and attacks humans and, and other animals, of course. Um, pardon me while I take a sip of coffee. My throat's getting a little raw. Okay, thank you very much for your grace. Um, now, let's... Uh, 
Like I said, I'm going to be presenting a lot of things. If you thought that was something, man, <laughs> you just wait. Um, I guess the first thing to do, I want to go into the Spanish flu of uh, 1918. I'm going to be reading an article. Um, this is uh, from a place called the Millennium Report. Let's see if I can get the whole link. No, I can't. Okay. Um, maybe if I enlarge this. The Millennium Report.com forward slash 2018 forward slash 11 forward slash forward slash Spanish dash flu dash of dash 1918 dash was dash really dash a dash bioterror dash attack dash on dash humanity forward slash. Oh my goodness. Well, you know what? You got to cite things, folks. If you're going to borrow from the internet, cite them. That way, if it's good information, then you've cited a good source. If it's bad, then you know who to blame. But anyway, a lot of people go through a lot of work to to write reports and to write um, essays and to write um, uh, journals that are uh, peer reviewed. And believe me, I've done this work because I've you know gone to college and I'm still going to college. And and you work really hard to do this stuff. And and it's the law that you have to cite. Otherwise, you're um, you're guilty of plagiarism, and I don't want to do that. Um, and I know you don't either. So anyway, cite everything if you can. Okay, but the art, name of this article is Spanish Flu of 1918 was really, a bio, was really a bioterror attack on humanity. Subtitled, did a military experimental vaccine in 1918 kill 50 to 100 million people blamed as the Spanish Flu. Uh, it's something called Health Impact News. Um, then there's another... Uh, title the 1918-19 bacterial vaccine experiment may have killed 50 to 100 million people written by kevin barry president uh, first freedoms incorporated all right here we go lord give me the voice to be able to say this without my voice growing old or tired let me be able to say it without my voice uh, needing very much to drink because I don't have anything here and I'd have to stop and I can't do that because this is a live radio show. Um, okay, so we'll start. The Spanish flu killed an estimated 50 to 100 million people during a pandemic of 1918 and 19. Uh, what is the story we've, um, what if the story we were told about this pandemic isn't true? What if instead of a killer in- infection was neither a flu nor Spanish in origin? A newly um, analyzed documents reveal that the Spanish flu may have been a military vaccine experiment gone awry. In looking on the 100th anniversary at the end of World War I, we need to delve deeper to solve this mystery. Now, here's a summary. Point number one, the, modern reason, the reason modern technology has not been able to pinpoint the killer influenza strain from this pandemic is because influenza was not the killer. Point two, military soldiers died during World War I from a disease from excuse me more military soldiers died during world war one from disease than from bullets point three the pandemic was not flu an estimated 95 percent or higher of the deaths were caused by a bacterial pneumonia not influenza slash a virus point next point the pandemic was not spanish the first cases of bacterial pneumonia 1918 traced back to military base in fort riley kansas Port Riley, Kansas. Pardon me, my voice messed up there. Uh, next point. From January 21st to June 24th of 1918, an experimental bacteria, bacterial meningitis vaccine 
cultured in horses by the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research in New York was injected in its soldiers at Fort Riley. Next point, during, this rema during the remainder of 1918, Azov soldiers, often living and traveling under poor sanitary conditions, were sent to Europe to fight. They spread the bacteria at every stop between Kansas and the frontline trenches of France. Next point, one study described soldiers with active infections who were aerosolizing the bacteria that colonized their inner noses and throats, while others, often in the same breathing spaces, were profoundly susceptible to infection and of and rapid spread through their lungs by their own or others colonizing bacteria. Next point, the Spanish flu attacked healthy people in their prime. Bacterial pneumonia attacks people in their prime. Flu attacks, the young, attacks the young, the old, and the Im immunocompromised. So there's a difference right there. Next point, when World War I ended on November 11, 1918, Soldiers returning to their home countries and colonial outposts, spreading the killer bacterial pneumonia worldwide. Next point and last one in this series. During World War I, the Rockefeller Institute also sent the anti-meningococcal serum to England, France, Belgium, Italy, and other countries, helping to spread the epidemic worldwide. During the pandemic of 1918 and 19, the so-called Spanish flu killed 50 to 100 million people, including many soldiers. Many people do not realize that diseases killed far more soldiers on all sides than machine guns or mustard gas or anything else typically associated with World War I. <clears throat> I have personal connection to the Spanish flu. Among those killed by the disease in 1918 and 19 are members of both my parents' families. Um, I have to say that it's the same way here, too. <laughs> um, on my father's side, his, grandfa his grandmother, Sadie Hoyt, died from pneumonia in 1918. Sadie was a chief yeoman in the Navy. Her death left my grandmother Rosemary and her sister Anita to be raised by their aunt. Sadie's sister Marion also joined the Navy. She died from the influenza in 1919. Uh, on a side note, my <clears throat> great-grandmother lost three of her siblings in that time period. Um, let's see. On my mother's side, this article continues, two of her father's, two of her father's sisters died in their childhood. All of the family members who died lived in New York City. I suspect many American families and many families worldwide were impacted in similar ways to this mysterious Spanish flu. In 1918, influenza or flu uh, was the catch-all term for the disease of unknown origin. It didn't carry the specific meaning as it does today. They used to call it the GRIPPE, too. G-R-I-P-P-E. Okay. It meant... Uh, it meant some mystery disease which dropped out of the sky. In fact, influenza is from the medieval Latin influential in as astrological sense, meaning a visitation under the influence of the stars. Interesting. Okay, title. What is what happened 100 years ago important now? Why is it? Between 1900 and 1920, there were enormous efforts underway in the industrialized world to build a better society. I will, I will use New York as an example to discuss three major changes to society which occurred in New York during that time and their impact on mortality and from infectious disease. Clean water and sanitation. In the late 19th century through the early 20th century, New York built an extraordinary system to bring clean water to the city from the Catskills, a system still in use today. New York City also built 6,000 miles of sewer to take away the take away and treat waste, which protects the drinking water. 
The World Health Organization acknowledges the importance of clean water and sanitation in combating infectious disease. Well, that's one thing they got, right? Um, electricity is another factor. In the late 19th century through the early 20th century, New York built a power grid and wired the city so that power was available in every home. Electricity allows for refrigeration. Refrigeration is an unsung hero as a public health benefit. When food is refrigerated from the farm to the table, the public is protected from potential infectious diseases. Cheap, renewable energy is, an import, is important for many reasons, including combating infectious diseases. Number three, pharmaceutical. In the late 19th century through the early 20th century, New York became the home of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, now Rockefeller University. The Institute is where the modern pharmaceutical industry was born. The Institute pioneered many of the approaches the pharmaceutical industry uses today, including the preparations of vaccine serums for better or worse. The vaccines used in the Fort Riley experiment on soldiers were made in horses. U.S. mortality rates data from the turn of the 20th century to 1965 clearly indicate that clean water, flushing toilets, effective sewer systems, and refrigerated foods all combine the to effectively reduce mortality from infectious diseases before vaccines for those diseases became available. Have doctors and pharmaceutical manufacturers taken credit for reducing mortality from infectious diseases, which rightfully belong to sand hogs, plumbers, electricians, and engineers? Question mark. <clears throat> if hubris at, is the Rockefeller Institute of 1918, let Excuse me. If hubris at the Rockefeller Institute of 1918 led to a pan pandemic disease which killed millions of people, what lessons can we learn from implied in 19, uh, 2018? First of all, the disease was not Spanish. While watching an episode of American Experience on PBS a few months ago, I was surprised to hear that the first cases of Spanish flu occurred at Fort Riley, Kansas in 1918. I thought, how is this possible? Is it possibly this historically important event could be so badly misnamed 100 years after and uh, years ago and never corrected? Why Spanish? Excuse me, a sip. Thank you for your grace. Spain was one of the few countries not involved in World War I. Most of the countries involved in the war censored their press. Free from censorship concerns, the earliest press reports of people dying from disease in large numbers came from Spain. The warring countries did not want additionally, to additionally frighten troops, so they were content to scapegoat Spain. Soldiers on all sides would be asked to cross no man's land in a machine gun fire, which was frightening enough without knowing that the trenches were disease breeding grounds. 100 years later, it's long time past to drop Spanish from the discussion of this pandemic. If the flu started at the United States military base in Kansas, then the disease should be more aptly named. In order to prevent future disasters, the United States and the rest of the world must take a hard look at really what really caused the pandemic. It's possible that one of the reasons the Spanish flu has never been connected is that it helps to disguise the origin of the pandemic. If the origin of the pandemic involved a vaccine experiment on U.S. soldiers, then the U.S. may prefer calling it Spanish flu instead of the Fort Riley bacteria of 1918 or something similar. The Spanish flu started at the location this experimental bacterial vaccine was given, making it the prime suspect as the source of bacterial infections which killed so many. 
it would be much more difficult to maintain marketing mantra of vaccines save lives if vaccine experiments originated in the United States during the years of primitive manufacture, causing the death of 50 to 100 million people. Um, okay. It says vaccine saves lives, except we may have killed 50 to 100 million people in 1918 and 19 is a far less effective sales slogan than overly simplistic vaccine saves lives. <laughs> oh, that's a nice little dig. I like it. Okay. Another title disease, which killed so many was not the flu or virus. It was bacterial during the mid 2000s. There was much talk about pandemic preparedness. Influenza vaccine manufacturers in the United States receive billions of taxpayer dollars to develop vaccines to make sure that we don't have another lethal pandemic flu like the one in 1918 and 19. Capitalizing on the flu, part of the Spanish flu, helped vaccine make, uh, manufacturers produce or procure billions of dollar, dollar checks from governments, even though scientists knew at the time that the bacterial pneumonia was a real killer. It's not my opinion that the bacterial pneumonia was the real killer. Thousands of autopsies confirm that fact. According to a 2008 National Institute of Health paper, bacterial pneumonia was the killer in a minimum of 92.7% of the 1918 and 19 autopsies reviewed. It's likely higher than 92.7. The researchers looked at more than 9,000 autopsies and there were no negative, there were no negative bacterial lung culture results. It's interesting. In the 68 higher quality autopsy series in which the possibility of reporting negative cultures could be excluded, 92.7 of the autopsy lung cultures were positive for greater than or equal to one bacterium. In one study of approximately 9,000 subjects who were followed from clinical pre pre presentation uh, with influenza to resolution or autopsy, re autopsy researchers obtained with sterile technique <clears throat> cultures of either uh, pneumonococci or streptococci from 164 to 167 lung, lung samples. There were 89 pure cultures of pneumococci, uh, 19 cult pneumonoxi, uh, pneumococci, uh, semicolon, 19 cultures from which only streptococci were removed, 34 that yielded mixtures of pneumococci and or streptococci, 22 that yielded a mixture of pneumococci, streptococci, and other organism, prominently uh, pneumococci and non-hemolytic streptococci, and three that yielded non-hemolytic streptococci alone. There were no negative lung culture results. Interesting. All of them had it. Uh, pneumococci or streptococci were found in 164 of the 167 lung tissue samples autopsy. That's a 98.2% bacterial the percent that bacteria that bacteria was the killer. Pardon me. Where did the Spanish flu bacterial pneumonia of 1918 originate? <clears throat> When the United States declared war in April 1917, the fledgling pharmaceutical industry had something they had never had before, a large supply of human test subjects in the form of U.S. military first draft, the first draft. Pre-war in 1917, the U.S. Army was at uh, 286,000 men. Post-war in 1920, the U.S. Army disbanded and had 296,000 men. During the war years, 1918 to 1919, 
U.S. Army ballooned to 6 million men, with 2 million men being sent overseas. The Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research took advantage of this new pool of human guinea pigs to conduct vaccine experiments. Um, Let's see, this is in a different color and bigger letters. Um, A report on anti-meningitis vaccinations and observations of uh, agglutinins in the blood of chronic meningococcus carriers by Frederick L. Gates. From the base hospital, Fort Riley, Kansas, the Rockefeller Institute Medical Research, New York, received 1918, um, July 20th. Here's an author note here. Please read the Fort Riley paper It's an enti- in its entirety so you can appreciate the carelessness of the experiments conducted on these troops. It's a very interesting paper, too. You need to read it. Um, and I gave you the link to this paper, so you can go to that, continuing with the article. Um, between January 21st and June 4th of 1918, Dr. Gates reports on an experiment where soldiers were given three doses of bacterial meningitis vaccine. Those conducting the experiments on the soldiers were just spitballing dosages of vaccine serums made in horses. The vaccination regime was designed to be three doses. 4,792 men received the first dose, but only 4,257 got the second dose, which is down 11%, and only 3,702 received all three doses, which is down 22.7%. A total of 1,090 men, that's 1,090 men, were not there for the third dose. What happened to these soldiers? Were they shipped east by train from Kansas to board ships to Europe? Were they in the Fort Raleigh Hospital? Dr. Gates' report doesn't tell us. An article accompanying the American Experience uh, broadcast I watched shed some light onto what these 1,090 men might be. Gates began his experiments in January of 1918. By March of that year, 100 men a day were entering the infirmary at, Fort, infirmary at Fort Riley. Are some of those men missing from Dr. Gates' report, the ones who did not get the second and third dose? And here's a quotation. Shortly before the breakfast on Monday, March 11, the first domino would fall, signaling the commencement of the first wave of the 1918 influenza. Company cook Albert Gitchell reported to the camp infirmary with complaints of a bad cold. Right behind him came Corporal Lee W. Drake voicing similar complaints. By noon, Camp Surgeon Edward R. Schreiner uh, had over 100 sick men on his hands, all apparently suffering from the same malady. Gates does not report that several of the men in the experiment had flu-like symptoms, coughs, vomiting, or diarrhea after receiving the vaccine. These symptoms are far are a disaster for men living in a barracks, traveling on trains to the Atlantic coast, sailing to Europe, and living and fighting in trenches. The unsanitary conditions at each stop of the journey are an ideal environment for contagious diseases like bacterial pneumonia to spread. Dr. Gates' report, uh, quote, reactions, several cases of looseness of the bowels or transient diarrhea were noted. The symptoms, uh, this symptom had not been encountered before, careful inquiry in individual cases often elicited the, the information that men who complained of the effects of vaccination were suffering from mild corsia, bronchitis, etc. at the time of injection. Sometimes the reaction was inherited by a chill or a chilly sensation, and a number of the men complained of fever or feverish sensations during the following night. 
Next in the frequency came nausea, occasional vomiting, uh, dizziness, and, and general aches and pains in the joints and muscles, which in a few instances were especially localized in the neck or the lumbar region, causing stiff neck and stiff back. A few injections were followed by diarrhea. Um, having had three relatives that have died of meningitis, it's usually a stiff neck. So this is definitely from the from the meningococcal um, injections, not a flu. Uh, that's I'm adding that. Um, to continue, the reactions therefore occasionally simulated, stimulated, or excuse me, simulated the onset of, of epidemic meningitis, and several vaccinated men were sent to, as suspects to the base hospital for diagnosis. Now, bear in mind, back then they didn't have penicillins, so meningitis was a death sentence. Okay, according to Gates, hmm, Gates, according to Gates. They injected random dosages of an experimental bacteria meningitis vaccine into soldiers. Afterwards, some of the soldiers had symptoms which simulated meningitis. But Dr. Gates advances the fantastical claim that it wasn't actual meningitis. Uh, the soldiers developed flu-like symptoms. Bacterial meningitis then and now is known to mimic flu-like symptoms. Interesting. Perhaps the similarity of early symptoms of bacterial meningitis and bacterial pneumonia to symptoms of the flu is why the vaccine experiments at Fort Riley have been able to escape scrutiny as a potential cause of the Spanish flu for 100 years and counting. Another title, how did the Spanish flu spread so widely so quickly? There is an element of the perfect storm in how Gates bacteria spread. World War II ended only 10 months after the first injections. Unfortunately, for the 50 to 100 million who died, those soldiers' injections with horse-infused bacteria moved quickly during those 10 months. An article from, the 2000, from 2008 on the CDC's website describes how sick World War I soldiers could pass along the bacteria to others by becoming cloud adults. Hmm, cloud adults. That's interesting. Uh, finally, for a brief period, this is a quote, finally, for brief periods uh, in, ver in varying degrees, affected hosts became cloud adults with increasing the aerosolation of colonized strains of bacteria, particularly uh, pneumococci, hemolytic streptococci, H. influenzae, and S. aureus. Okay, for several days during the local epidemics, particularly in crowded settings such as hospital wards, military camps, troop ships, and mines, and trenches. That's what mines means, and trenches. Uh, some persons were immu immunologically susceptible to infected with or recovering from infections with influenza virus. Persons with active infections were aerosolizing the bacteria that colonized in their noses and throats, while others, often in the same breathing spaces, were profoundly susceptible to invasion of the rapid spread through their lungs by their own, by their own or others colonizing bacteria. Do you remember what I told you about when you're immune compromised, how you can catch stuff easier? There you go. Continuing. Three times in his report on Fort Riley vaccine experiment, Dr. Gates states that some of the soldiers had a severe reaction, indicating as usual individual suspects susceptibility to vaccine. Excuse me. While the vaccine made many sick, it only killed those who were susceptible to it. Those who became sick and survived became cloud adults who spread the bacteria to others, which created more cloud adults spreading to others, which where it killed susceptible 
the susceptible, repeating this cycle until there were no longer wartime unsanitary conditions and there were no longer millions of soldiers to experiment on. The toll of U.S. troops was enormous and it was documented and is well documented. Dr. Carol um, Byerly describes how the influenza traveled like wildfire through the U.S. military. Um, and in parentheses, substitute bacteria for Dr. Beverly's influenza or virus. So let's do that while we're reading. Uh, 14 of the largest training camps had reported uh, bacteria outbreaks in March, April, and May, and some of the infected troops carried the bacteria with them aboard the ships to France. And remember, I'm substituting that in the article, okay? As soldiers in the trenches became sick, the military evacuated them from the front lines and replaced them with healthy men. This process continuously brought the bacteria into contact with new hosts, young, healthy soldiers in which it could adapt, reproduce, and become extremely vir virulent uh, without danger of burning out. Before any travel ban could be imposed, a contingent of replacement troops departed uh, Camp Devon's outside of Boston, for Camp Upton, Long Island, the Army debarkation point for France, and took uh, the bacteria with them. Uh, medical officers at Upton said it arrived abruptly on September 13, 1918, with 38 hospital admissions, followed by 86 the next day and 193 the next. My God. Uh, hospital admissions peaked on October 4th, with 483, and within 40 days, Camp Upton sent 6,131 men to the hospital for influenza. Some developed pneumonia so quickly that physicians diagnosed it simply by observing the patient rather than listening to the lungs. The United States was not the only country in possession of Rockefeller Institute's experimental bacteria vaccine. In 1919, a 1919 report from the Institute states, References should be made that before the United States entered into the war in April of 1917, the Institute had resumed the preparation of anti-meningococcal uh, serum in order to meet the request of England, France, Belgium, Italy, and other countries. The same report states, in order to meet the sudden increased demand for the curative serums worked out at the Institute, a special stable for horses was quick, quickly erected. All right, so that ends that quote. Um, an experimental anti-meningococcal uh, serum made <clears throat> in horses and injected into soldiers who would be entering into the cramped and unsanitary living conditions of war. What could possibly go wrong? In the bacterial, is the bacterial serum made in horses at the Rockefeller Institute, which was injected in U.S. soldiers and distributed to numerous other countries responsible for the 50 to 100 million people killed by the bacterial lung infection in 1918 and 19? The Institute says it distributed the bacterial serum to England, France, Belgium, Italy, and other countries during World War I. Not enough is known about those countries' experiments and honor soldiers. I hope independent researchers will take an honest look with these questions, at these questions. Okay, next uh, title, The Road to Hell is Paved with Good Intentions. I do not believe that anyone involved in these vaccine experiments was trying to harm anyone. Some will see the name Rockefeller and yell Illuminati or culling the herd. I do not believe that's what happened. I believe he's saying this. I don't. <laughs> I believe standard medical hubris is responsible. Doctors playing God thinking that they can tame nature without creating an un unanticipated problems. 
with uh, medical hubris, I do not think the situation has changed materially over the past 100 years. So what now? The vaccine industry is always looking for human test subjects. They have the most success when they are able to find preparations, populations who, uh, not, <clears throat> who are not in a position to refuse. Uh, soldiers, uh, infants, the disabled, prisoners, those in developing nations, anyone that's not able to refuse. Vaccine experimentation on vulnerable populations is not an issue of the past. Um, watch this video clip, and we'll not, won't be able to do that, of course. Dr. Stanley Plotkin, where he describes using experimental vaccine on orphans, the mentally retarded, prisoners, and those under colonial rule. The disposition was in January of 2018. The hubris of the medical community is the same or worse now than it was 100 years ago. Watch Dr. Plotkin admits to writing. Watches Dr. Plotkin admits to writing. The question is whether we are to have experiments performed on fully functioning adults or, and on children who are potentially contributors to society or to perform initial studies in children and adults who are human in form, uh, but not in social potential. That's terrible. Okay. In part because of the global community, because the global community is well aware of uh, medical hubris and well aware of poor record of medical ethics, the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights developed the international standards regarding the right to inform consent uh, of conformance and to, to preventive medical procedures like vaccination. The international community is well aware that the pharmaceutical industry makes mistakes and always on is always on a lookout for human test subjects. The declaration states that individuals have the right to consent to any preventative medical or intervention like vaccination. Uh, Article three, human dignity and human rights. Number one, human dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms are to be fully respected. Number two, the interest and welfare of the individual should have a priority over the sole interests of science and society. Now, Article six, which is titled consent, Number one, any preventative diagnostic or therapeutic medical intervention is only to be carried out with the prior free and informed consent of the person concerned based on adequate information. He, uh, oh, the consent should be where appropriate, be, expre be expressed and may be withdrawn by the person concerned at any time and for any reason without disadvantage or prejudice. Clean water, sanitation, flushing toilets, refrigerated foods, and healthy diets have done and still do far more to protect humanity from infectious disease than any vaccine program. Doctors, <clears throat> doctor and vaccine industry have usurped credit, which rightfully belongs to plumbers, electricians, sand hogs, and engineers, and city planners. For these reasons, policymakers at all levels of government should protect human rights and individual liberties of individuals uh, to opt out of the vaccine programs via exemptions. The hubris of the medical community will never go away. Policymakers, will, uh, policymakers need to know that vaccines, like all medical interventions, are not infallible. Vaccines are not magic. We all have different, susceptible, we all have different susceptibility to disease. Human beings are not one size fits all. 
1918 and 19, the vaccination industry experimented on soldiers likely with disastrous results. In 2018, the vaccine industry experiments on infants every day. The vaccine schedule has never been tested as it is given. The results of experiment are in one in seven American children is in some form of special education and over 50% of some form of chronic, chronic illness. In 1918 and 19, there was no safety follow-up after vaccines were delivered. In 2018, there's virtually no safety follow-up after vaccine is delivered. Who exactly gave you the flu shot at Rite Aid? Do you have their cell number or the store employee if something goes wrong? In 1918 and 19, there was no liability to the manufacturer for injuries or death caused by vaccines. In 2018, there's no liability for vaccine manufacturers for injury or death caused by vaccines, which was formalized in 1986. In 1918 and 19, there were no independent investigative follow-ups. Follow, there was no investigative follow-up challenging the officer official story of the Spanish flu which was some mystery illness which dropped from the sky. I suspect that many of those Rockefeller in the Rockefeller Institute knew what happened and that many of the doctors who administered the vaccine to the troops knew what happened, but those people are long dead. In 2018, the pharmaceutical injury is the largest campaign donor to politicians and the largest advertiser in the form of media, so not much has changed over 100 years. The story will likely be ignored by mainstream media because their salaries are paid by pharmaceutical advertising. The next time you hear someone say vaccines save lives, please remember the story. Remember the true story of the cost benefit of vaccines is much more complicated than their three word slogan. Also remember that vaccines may have killed 50 to 100 million people in 1918 and 19. If true, those costs greatly outweighed any benefit, <clears throat> especially considering that plumbers, Electricians, sand hogs, and engineers did and continue to do the real work that reduces mortality from disease. Vaccines are not magic. Human rights and bioethics are critically important. Policymakers should understand the history of medical hubris and protect individuals and parental human rights as described in the Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights. And that is the end of that article. Gives a whole bunch of... Uh, credits and um, and stuff like that so anyway so that's a very interesting thing I, I think you agree with me on that um, so we found out that one of the main characters in this thing had the last name of Gates Frederick L Gates I read to you basically his life story um, you know summed up in a page and a half or two and a half pages um, and he, he worked for the Rockefeller Foundation Okay, pardon me while I get another drink. Well, cold coffee is better than no coffee, I guess. Okay. So, there are two other articles. Oh, this one's pretty long. I don't know if we'll go into this. I need, I need to look real quick and see where we stand on um, our time. We've been on for about an hour. Okay, it's not too bad, actually, when you think about it. Okay. All right, so there's an article titled Bill Gates and Rockefeller Foundation Plan to, to Track Americans. And basically that's what the whole thing is about. Yeah, the whole thing is about injecting us with a vaccine, 
uh, tracking us to see how the vaccine's working, tracking the people that don't get the vaccine so that you can discriminate against them because they chose not to buy into your little scheme. And um, who knows what's in this thing? If it if it's something that can, well, they haven't even invented it yet as far as I know, but if it's something that can uh, be used later on, be activated later on, maybe to take you all out, maybe by 5G, wouldn't that be interesting? Huh. That would kind of couple up with the uh, story that we did the other day. And then there's another article in a new American deep state, follow the Rothschild, Soros and Rockefeller money. So I think it's more important to read the other one that um, has my voice is <clears throat> still OK, but it's not what it was when we started. Now, I, you know, bear in mind that this order comes this uh, article comes from a page called the Era of Light. Awaken, the new world is here. So um, we're talking about a new age site here. But I read through it and it does have some interesting uh, things to, to bring forth and for you to think about, uh, mainly before you take this uh, this vaccine that they're going to make and uh, uh, and the reason why they're making it and, uh, and what Bill Gates believes in. Okay. Okay, so Bill Gates and Rockefeller Foundation plan to track Americans. And it was posted on 516 of 2020 by Era of Light. And um, the web page is uh, https colon forward slash forward slash era of light, E R A O F L I G H T dot com forward slash 2020 forward slash 05 forward slash 16. And picture a. Uh, uh, a dash in between each of these words, okay? Bill Gates and Rockefeller Foundation plan to track American, okay? And then forward slash. You put the the um, dashes in there, okay? All right, let me start. Bill Gates, who illegally invests in the same industries he gives charitable donations to and who promotes a global public health agenda that benefits the companies he's invested in, has gone on record saying that life will not Will not go back to normal until we have the ability to vaccinate the entire global population against COVID-19. To that end, he is pushing for disease surveillance and a vaccine tracking system that might involve embedding vaccination records on our bodies. One example of how this might be done is using an invisible ink quantum dot tattoo described in December 18, 2019 science transition, uh, translational medicine paper three and four um, according to the statements made by gates societal and financial normalcy will never return to those who refuse the vaccination as the digital vaccination certi certificate gates is pushing for might ultimately be required to go about your day-to-day -day life and business without this um, digital immunity proof you may not even be able to travel uh, locally or visit certain public buildings. Gates has a history of predicting, uh, and that's in quotation marks, global pandemics with vast numbers of death. And with his call for tracking system to keep tabs on infected, non-infected, vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, he's ensuring an imaginable, unimaginable profitable future for the vaccine makers he supports and makes money from via his foundation and investments. 
Along with Gates, the Rockefeller Foundation is also coordinating, coordinating efforts in the direction of societal control through the implementation of draconian COVID-19 tracking and tracing measures that are clearly meant to become permanent. Title, uh, National COVID-19 Testing Action Plan. Uh, April 21st, 2020, the Rockefeller Foundation released a white paper titled National COVID-19 Testing Action Plan dash strategic steps to reopen our workplaces and our communities. Okay, I was, had to look at the date. In the forward, uh, Rockefeller Foundation President Dr. Rajiv J. Shah writes, that, note that that's an Iranian name, um, and quote, in the face of an ineffective nationally coordinated response, insufficient data, and inadequate amounts of protective gear and testing, we need an exit plan. Testing is our way out of this crisis. Instead of ricocheting between an uns unsustainable shutdown and a da and dangerous, uncertain return to normalcy, the United States must mount a sustainable strategy with better tests and contact tracing and to stay the course for as long as it takes to develop a vaccine or cure. Any plan to do so must win faith of public and private sector leaders across the country and of individual Americans that they and their loved ones will be safer when we begin to return to daily life. See, this is all propaganda. This is interesting. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation exists to meet uh, moments like this. <clears throat> In the past two weeks, we have brought together ex experts and leaders from science, industry, academia, uh, public policy, and government across sectors of political ideologies to create a clear, pragmatic, data-driven, actionable plan to beat back COVID-19 and to get Americans back to work safely. The plan calls for testing and tracing 1 million Americans per week to start incrementally ramping up to 3 million and then 30 million per week, the 1-3-30 plan, over the next six months until the entire population has been covered. Test results would be collected on a digital platform capable of tracking all test individuals so that contact tracing can be performed when someone tests positive. According to the National COVID-19 Testing Action Plan, policymakers and, public, and the public must find a balance between privacy concerns and infection control to allow for infection status of most Americans to be accessed and validated in a few required settings and more voluntary ones. To this end, they suggest using incentives, <laughs> incentives, uh, to nudge the, the nudge the voluntary use of tracking and contact tracing apps rather than making them mandatory. They also call for the use of innovative digital technologies aimed at improving workforce monitoring and early detection of recurrent outbreaks. When integrated, when integrated into national and state surveillance systems, such innovations may be may enable the same level of outbreak detection with fewer tests. <clears throat> Promising techniques uh, include anonymous digital tracking of workforces or population-based resting heart rate and smart thermometer trends, continually updated epidemiological data modeling, modeling uh, the artificial intelligence projections based on clinical and image dating, the document states, the document states, okay, modern wartime effort will cost billions. 
according to the National COVID-19 Testing Action Plan, monitoring the pandemic and adjusting social distancing measures will require launching the largest public health testing program in American history. Let me take a side from that, folks. Um, people are already, already buying into this crap, and it is crap. It's it's propaganda. It's uh, pandering. It's uh, it's um, inculcation. That's a good word for it. Um, the other day, uh, it was last weekend or last week, my wife and I went up to Albany, Oregon. Uh, we had to pick up something at the store, and um, my wife's feet were hurting, so I told her to stay where she was. I'd go get the car. So she went into a yogurt shop, which was kind of our plan anyway, and sat there. And I went to get the car, and I turned the corner. And bear you, I'm not. Bear in mind, I'm not wearing a mask. I don't believe in it, and I'm not going to do it. Uh, if a store tells me to do it, I'll just go to another store. Um, anyway, I turned the corner, and there was a woman with her two children. I can't remember if they were boys or girls, or a boy and a girl, or what. Um, but I turned a corner, and the woman saw I didn't have a mask, and she pulled her kids to the other side of the sidewalk as far as you could go without getting out in the parking lot, and they walked by me. Um, we were in um, another store just a few days ago. I think it was last uh, Wednesday. And you know how they have those little dots on the floor? Uh, you got to stand six feet apart. Well, we were just standing there, and I guess we weren't on our dot. And this little Asian gal that was standing in front of us turned around and kind of looked at us with a disconcerting um, meanness. <laughs> and uh, like, you know, you're not obeying the rules. And so we just kind of looked at her. And when she turned back around, we backed up. I wasn't going to do it while she was looking at me. Um, I wasn't going to be intimidated that way. But um, so we backed up maybe about six inches and got on her tot. But um Anyway, this is getting ridiculous. This is getting to the point where people are going to start turning in, uh, turning in other people to the authorities because they're not obeying the rules. And I'm using quotation points, making them with my fingers. Um, it's uh, the, the public, the, the people that have taken the blue pill and not the red pill, have uh, gone into uh, COVID-19 mode, to panic mode, to uh, everything the government tells me, I'm going to believe mode. And boy, if you're that way, then you've got bigger problems than you can imagine. And it's going to come back to bite you in the rear end at a later date. But let's continue with our article. If I can remember where we were. Okay, that's where we were. Uh, according to the National COVID-19 Testing Action Plan, monitoring the pandemic and adjusting social distancing measures will require launching the largest public health testing program in American history over my dead body. Um, the effort will ultimately grow to billions of dollars per month, but with widespread uh, business closures causing the country 350 billion to 400 billion each month, uh, the expense will be worth it. This was written before the country started to open up again. Um, so maybe their plans will be squat, quashed. Anyway, uh, this testing infrastructure is intended to, intended to tide the country over until vaccine as therapy is widely accepted. Uh, coordinating such a massive program <clears throat> should be treated as a wartime effort with a private or public-private um, bipartisan pandemic testing board established to assist and, uh, and serve as a bridge between local, state, and federal officials with the logistical investment of and public challenges this operation will eventually face. 
another title, Don't Be Naive About Infectious Tracking Plans. Call me jaded, but this sounds like a plan to surveil Americans so that they can easily be tracked down for mandatory vaccinations once the COVID-19 vaccine becomes available. I have no problem with believing that. Sure, it looks like it's going that way. It also creates the necessary infrastructure for vaccination tracking across the board for all vaccines. While they give lip service to privacy and and, and anonymation of data, uh, privacy promises have been repeatedly broken in the past. Besides, the document clearly states that, quotation, some privacy concerns must be set aside for an infectious agent as virulent as COVID-19, allowing the infection status of most Americans to be accessed and validated in a few required settings and many voluntary ones. The loss of privacy engendered by such a system would come at too high a price if the arrival of the vaccine early next year was a certainty. But vaccine development and manufacture could take years, and when it comes to certain populations, may be excluded from receiving it for health reasons. In the meantime, infectious status must be known for people to participate in many societal functions, legislation, protection, protecting people from being fired over infection status must be passed. Those screen screen must give uh, be given a unique patient identification number that would link oh, Jesus is Auschwitz all over again that would link to information about the patient's viral antibody and eventually vaccine status under a system that could easily hand that could easily handshake with other systems to speed the return of normal societal functions. Schools could link this to attendance lists, large office buildings to employee ID cards, TSA to passenger lists, and concert uh, and certain sport events to ticket purchases. Such connections should be made in a way that protects personal identifying information whenever possible, whenever and wherever possible data should be open. Isn't it saying one thing and saying another at the same time? That's what it seems like to me. Another title, are you ready to give up everything over a flu virus? Privacy concerns must be set aside. Infection status must be accessed and validated in a few required settings. That was a quote from above. And, and they're saying infection status will be linked to schools, office buildings, places of work, airport, concert, and sports venues. In other words, most area people, most areas people need or want to frequent if not daily, then at least occasionally. Infection status must be known for people to participate in societal functions. Legislation must be passed to protect people from being fired from their jobs based on their infection status. And they're asking, are you concerned yet? Are you concerned yet? Anyone who remembers the tactics employed in Nazi Germany, bingo, I said it just above. Or anyone familiar with the current surveillance of the Chinese population will realize that this, where this is headed. Uh, reading through the plan, it should be crystal clear that tracking and surveillance programs is not designed to be temporary. You can strongly, you, you can be strongly assured that this will be permanent. It calls for hundreds of thousands of new employees, updating computer systems and new laws that, in many ways, resemble the implementation of TSA post 9/11. Not addressed in this report is the question of just how often uh, would you have to undergo testing? A negative result today might not be valid tomorrow if you happen to come across someone who is infected between now and then. Uh, 
would you have to undergo testing every single day, once a week? If regular testing is not part of the plan, then the whole system is worthless as your infection status could change at any time. Other questions not addressed. If you happen to be in a vicinity of someone who tests positive in their near future, would you have to be quarantined for two weeks? Will your employer pay for that time off? Will you have a job when you come out of quarantine? What if you're quarantined for two weeks, but you don't get sick and test negative for antibodies, then go out and happen to come across yet another person who ends up testing positive shortly thereafter? You would be forced into quarantine again? <clears throat> Where does it end? The tracking system... Uh, the tracking system the Rockefeller Foundation is calling for is eerily similar to that that is already being used in China, where residents are required to enroll in a health condition registry. Once enrolled, they get a personal QR code, which they must then enter into to gain access to grocery stores and other facilities. <clears throat> the plan also demands all access to other medical data, <clears throat> according to the National COVID-19 Testing Action Plan. Another quote here, this infection database must easily inter interoperate with doctors, hospitals, insurance, health records, and in an essential and urgent national program to finally rationalize the desperate, disparate, excuse me, and sometimes deliberate isolated electronic medical record system across the country. Unfortunately, obtaining the necessary clinical data to bring these powerful analytic tools to bear has been difficult due to some information blocking tactics of electronic health records, EHR vendors. Uh, among the long-time tactics used by such vendors has been uh, charge, charging unreasonable fees for data access, <clears throat> requiring providers to sign restrictive contracts and claiming patients' clinical data is proprietary. On March 9th, the Department of Health and Human Services, the HHS, released two long-awaited final rules that would prohibit information blocking in healthcare and advance more seamless exchange of health and care data. But, publica but publication of the Federal Register necessary to activate the rules <clears throat> has been explicably delayed. This delay must end. In other words, the plan for far more comprehensive than merely tracking COVID-19 cases is designed to replace the current system of disparate and sometimes deliberately isolated electronic medical records across the country. I wonder where HIPAA fits in all this. Okay, another title, ID 2020. While the Rockefeller Foundation's white paper simply calls for the use of digital patient identification number without indicating exactly how you would carry this ID number on your person, Gates has repeatedly talked about the need for some sort of implantable vaccine certificate. Do, do, do. Here we go. In 1999, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation donated $750 million to set up Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Gavi, in turn, has partnered with ID2020 Alliance along with Bangladeshi government to launch a digital identity program called ID2020. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also funded the GSMA Inclusive Tech Lab launched in 2019 and aimed at the aim of which is to promote access to digital biometric identity services and systems. <clears throat> ID2020, which also launched in, in 2019, is designed to leverage immunization as an opportunity to establish digital identity. 
This digital identity system is to carry far-reaching implications for individuals' access to services and livelihoods. So to think that Gates's uh, call for implantable COVID-19 vaccine certificates would be limited to that alone would be, again, a, mis- a grave mistake. Like the Rockefeller Foundation, Gates is not presenting short is not presenting short-term temporary measures. They're both aimed at implementing totalitarian control systems. It's not far-fetched to imagine a future where <clears throat> which your vaccine certificate or unique patient ID replaces your personal identification, such as your driver's license, state ID card, social security card, and passport, and is tied not only to your medical records in total, but also your finances. I remain confident that it would be a tragic mistake to trust Gates, Rockefeller, Google, or any other players that are being brought before us as the saviors of the day. While most people are well acquainted with the Rockefeller name, few probably know the true history of the Rockefeller's rise to power. If you fall into this category, be sure to read How the Oil Industry Conquered Medicine, Finance, and Agriculture, which features an excellent report by, the, by James Corbett. Those who are ignorant of history are bound to repeat it, and if the Rockefeller story tells us anything, it is that, use, it is that unless we realize what has been done, we'll just be deceived again and again because the oil oligarchy's end game is yet to be realized if we let them. And uh, <clears throat> uh, there's a little aside here by Dr. Joseph Mercola. Uh, it says, from the author, the existing medical establishment is responsible for killing and permanently injuring millions of Americans, but the surging numbers of visitors to Marcola.com since I began the site in 1997, we are routinely among the top 10 health sites on the Internet, convinces me that you, too, are fed up with the deception. You want practical health solutions without hype, and that's what I offer. That's interesting. Mercola, M-E-R-C-O-L-A dot com. You should visit that site. Um, not endorsing it, but visit it. So anyway, um, how are we looking on time here, folks? Oh, an hour and 18 minutes, huh? Well, I'm going to tell you something. The uh, The other article I wanted to read is very long. <laughs> very, very long. And um, what I think I'm going to do is opt to not read it and maybe save it for another show that I'll do sometime this week. Um, I don't mind doing these solo shows. I really don't. Um, and a lot of people like them. A lot. Of, I get a lot of response. I get a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, I get data back from Spreaker telling me that a lot of people watch these or listen to these shows. And, um, and that's encouraging. Because uh, there are things that you need to hear. There are things that uh, um, we don't have time to, to bring up all the time with the three of us on there. And especially if there's, it's a gray area that maybe all of us don't agree on, I have to still bring it to you, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, otherwise, I'm derelict in my duties. You know, I'm looking at this article. It's not that long. Maybe I'll do this because I've got... We have, um, I have the capability of going three hours. I don't want to do that, but um, let me let me do this, okay? I haven't read through this article, but it looked real interesting, and I figured I'd read it. If it goes into some weird stuff, I'll stop and and um, 
we'll go from there. But um, <clears throat> this article was published on Monday, the 8th of January, 2018. So it's an article that's about three years old, a little more than three years old. But it's still got pertinent information in it. It's going to tell us uh, the fall of the money, basically. Uh, the name of the article is Deep State, Follow the Rothschild, Soros, and Rockefeller Money. It's written by an Alex Newman. And it's uh, the website is The New American. And uh, the link is https forward slash twice www.thenewamerican.com and um, forward slash print dash magazine forward slash item forward slash 27869 and put um, dashes in between the rest of it, okay? Uh, after the nine, uh, Deep State, follow the Rothschild, Soros, and Rockefeller money. Put dashes in between each of those words and it'll get you right where you need to go. Okay. With almost unlimited capital, Wall Street money men use it to centralize government. Their plans to smack worldwide crony capitalism with government rules made to order. It may sound cliche, but there's a great deal of wisdom in the old saying about catching criminals, follow the money. That advice applies much, as much to catching small-time petty thieves as it does to big global crime syndicates. And it's especially relevant when trying to understand the bureaucratic and intelligence community components of the deep state, and more importantly, the deep state behind the deep state. This shadowy network, which is barely concealed, which is barely concealed at this point, <clears throat> includes secret societies such as Skull and Bones and the Bohemian Grove, and I'm going to add the, the Masons, as well as less secretive organizations such as the Council for Relations. Uh, the Triletter Commission and the Bilderberger meetings. Money is key. Of course, as used by the establishment media, what has typically been referred to recent, in recent months as a deep state is simply just different parts of a federal government, particularly the permanent bureaucratic caste uh, and what is known as the intelligence community. However, that is only a part of the story. Others who have commented on the subject have noted the prominence of the big business community and Wall Street in regards to the deep state. Former congressional staffer Mike Lofgren, a top secret security clearance holder and one of the early voices to develop the idea of the deep state in America, refers to it as hybrid entity of public and private institutions ruling the country. Okay, a little bit of a title here, Wall Street and the deep state. In particular, Lofgren was noted that has noted that Wall Street and D.C. are crucial. Washington is the most important node of the deep state and has taken over America, but it's not the only one, argued Lofgren, who wrote the book on the subject before Donald Trump became president. Invisible threads of money and ambition connect the town to other nodes. One is Wall Street, which supplies the cash that keeps the political machine quiescent. Um, and operating as diverse, diversionary, a marionette, a, a diversionary marionette theater. Uh, should the politicians forget their lines and threaten the status quo, Wall Street floods the town with cash and lawyers to help the hired hands remember that their best interest, remember their best interest. Of course, Lofgren is correct, but the proverbial rabbit hole goes even deeper. Wall Street, and especially outfits such as the Vampire Squid, Goldman Sachs, I love it, <laughs> Vampire Squid, 
are indeed essential elements of the deep state, but the reality is even worse than Lofgren seems to recognize. An explosive 2011 Wait a minute. An explosive 2011 Swiss study published in PLOS One Journal on the Network of Global Corporate Control. Uh, for, uh, for instance, the, the highlights the facts that tiny group of entities, mostly financial institutions, especially central banks, exerts a massive amount of influence over the international economy from behind the scenes. According to peer-reviewed paper, which presented the first global investigation of ownership and control architecture in the international economy, international economy, transnational corporations from the giant bow tie structure. A large portion of control flows to a small, tightly knit core of financial institutions, investors found, describing the core as an economic super entity. Not surprisingly, this economic super entity is dominated by members of the deep state behind the deep state, a relatively tiny group of individuals with unfathomable power and influence. The individuals in control of this tiny handful of mega banks, especially Barclays Bank, J.P. Morgan, Chase and Company, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, and the Credit and Credit Suisse, among a handful of others, are the very center of it all. Let me move this page up a little bit. Uh, Lofgren <clears throat> was not the first observer to realize to point out the elected officials ostensibly in charge of governing America are not really in charge. Even close friends and associates of the deep state behind a deep state have commented on the issue. The late Georgetown University professor Carol Quigley, a mentor of President Bill Clinton, and if you listen to our things with uh, our programs with Ralph Epperson, you'll recognize those names, <clears throat> was close to the core of the deep state for years. And while he disagreed with the secrecy, he admitted on, to agreeing with most of its aims. <clears throat> He's even allowed to, he was even allowed to examine the records for a period of time. And then spilling the proverbial beans, Quigley put some of the explosive findings in his massive 1966 book, Tragedy and Hope, A History of the, One World, uh, History of the World in Our Time. Ralph often uh, referred to that book. Um, Quigley referred, <clears throat> Quigley offered uh, extremely important insights into the agenda, especially the monetary machinations of the deep state. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching re aim, nothing less than to create a world of system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system in each country and economy as the world as a whole. He explained on page 324, he said this system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at, at in frequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was to be the bank was to be the bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Indeed, just as Quigley explained, the world now exists under the uh, what could fairly be described as non-feudalist type system. An, interna an international entity such as Bank International Settlements and the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank play key roles in it all. Another crucial component of that, of, of that involves control of economy and even political systems. 
uh, of the nations by a tiny clique which exercises this power quietly through well-connected mega banks that literally own the central banks. The Federal Reserve, for instance, is essentially a banking cartel with each regional Federal Reserve Bank owned and controlled by its member banks. In court filings, the Federal Reserve Banks have even boldly declared that laws applicable to government agencies, such as transparency requirements, do not apply to Fed banks because they are private corporations. That the Federal Reserve System dominates the U.S. economy today is impossible to dispute. <clears throat> Simply observe the news coverage and endless media speculations ahead of the Fed meetings about what the central planners may or may not decide to do about interest rates. Consider also that amid the last economic crisis, the U.S. Special Inspector General for the Troubled Asset Relief Program estimated the potential total cost of the combined crisis bailouts at $23.7 trillion with a T, or more than $75,000 per person in the United States, money created out of thin air by unelected, unaccountable central bankers. For perspective, the U.S. GDP is around $18 trillion. Those bailed out were largely the mega banks and cronies of the Federal Reserve bosses. Consider, too, that, this, consider too, that studies such as the release of, in 2014 by the official Monetary and Financial Institution Forum that showed the central banks, including the Fed, now dominate even the stock markets, which some of them even buying and selling stocks directly using money conjured into existence out of thin air. They also rig prices for all sorts of assets, as the New American and many other sources have documented and Fed bosses have admitted publicly. In 1998, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan testified to Congress that the central banks stand ready to lease gold in increasing quantities should the prices rise, thereby keeping prices down. There's some good news about the Fed I'll share after we're done here. <clears throat> Um, according to the top officials, many of these mega bankers are beyond being too big to fall, too, too big to fail, and being bailed out by unwitting American savers and taxpayers. They're also too big to jail, giving them free reign to perpetuate crimes as, at will. On March 6, 2013, testifying before the Senate committee, former Attorney General Eric Holder even said it explicitly. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to prosecute them when they when we are hit with indications that if you do prosecute, if you do bring criminal charges, it will have a negative impact on the national economy, perhaps even the world economy. Wow, that's a lot of power. Okay, another title, Deep State Money Men Love Globalism and Communism. <clears throat> Senior leaders of the deep state behind the deep state, which use central banks and political institutions to advance its objectives, have boasted of their agenda and their power. The late David Rockefeller, formerly CEO of Chase Manhattan Megabank and a leading deep state boss involved in leadership of the Bilderberg meetings, the Trilateral Commission and the Council of Foreign Relations, revealed his true colors in writing in his 2002 autobiography memoirs. And he says, some even believe that we, the Rockefellers, are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. 
one world, if you will. Rockefeller explains on page 405, if you if that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. In short, the powerful globalist boasted of being a conspirator working against America in favor of a one world system. The deep state supposedly capitalist money men have no aversion to communism either as Quigley revealed in his book. Decades before the startling admission of his own memoirs, Rockefeller himself showed praises on most of the murderous dictatorships to, play, to plague humanity in all the record of, record of history. Whatever the price, the Chinese revolution, it has obviously succeeded not only in producing a more efficient and dedicated administration, but also fostering a high morale and community purpose. Rockefeller claimed in 1973 New York Times piece about Mao Zedong's communist revolution that murdering tens of millions of people in cold blood, saying the social experiment in China under Chairman Mao's leadership was one of the most important and successful in human history. For deep state luminaries such as Rockefeller, then mass murder and total subjugation of the people is a tremendous success. So we can safely conclude that that the success or failure of the globalist world order Rockefeller and his cronies is aiming for will not be dedicated to how well it cares for the middle and lower classes. Got to raise the page again. <clears throat> this is where we get into this Soros character. More recently, fellow deep state bigwig George Soros, another key money man, and a protege of the even more powerful, wealthy Rothschild dynasty, echoed those remarks about communist China. In 2009, for instance, Soros called for the communist regime enslaving mainland China, uh, regime enslaving mainland China to own what he referred to as the New World Order. Speaking of the Financial Times, and the self-styled philanthropist declared that the United States and the U.S. dollar were more on their way down and that the Communist Party regime must step up to the plate. I think you really need to bring China into the creation of the New World Order, Soros says, without noting that the regime has murdered more people than any other in human history. I think you need a New World Order that China has to be a part of the process of creating if they have to buy in. They will have to own it in the same way that the United States own it, owns it, the current order. <clears throat> it, was a, it was hardly a slip-up. The next year, while receiving the Globalist of the Year Award for the Canadian International Council, Soros again called for China to play a lead role in emerging global governance regime. They now have got to accept the responsibility for the new world order, for the world order, excuse me, and the interests of the people of, of other people as well, declared Soros, a self-styled atheist who has said publicly that he feels like God sometimes. Today, China not only has a more vigorous economy, but actually a better functioning government than the United States. From Beijing to Moscow and to Washington, D.C. to London, globalist deep state operatives are openly and covertly pushing for this new world order, which is being <clears throat> built through regional orders such as the European Union, the African Union, the Eurasian Union, the Union of South American States, and more as explained so and more as explained as explained by so many globalist schemers. Well, 
Let's see, where are we here? While rarely in the spotlight, the Rothschild banking dynasty, the ultimate deep state characters, is the center of the rigged global financial system. The Rothschilds are wealthy and powerful beyond comprehension. On its website, Rothschild & Company, one of the many Rothschild banking operations self, uh, styles itself one of the world's largest independent financial advisory groups, providing services and solutions to large institutions, families, individuals, and governments worldwide. Having been at the center of the world's financial markets for more than 200 years, we can rely on the unrivaling global network of more than 2,800 talented employees and a track record of outstanding execution with 50 offices around the world. The website boasts that in what might even be an understatement, adding that the Rothschild and company can be closer to current issues than any other global financial institution in our core markets. They're not kidding. Estimates of the ultra-secretive dynasty's wealth reach into the trillions of dollars. The power of this dynasty is well known to historians and insiders and it stretches back centuries. The Rothschilds had decided to outcome decided the outcome of the Napoleonic Wars by putting their financial weight behind Britain. <clears throat> Noted historian and established uh, establishment apologist Niall Ferguson in his book, The World's Banker, The History of the House of the Rothschild. Um, in other words, even, even more than two centuries ago, <clears throat> this dynasty, which is deeply involved in global central banking regime described by Quigley, was able to decide the outcome of wars between two of the most powerful governments that existed on the planet. Since then, the dynasty's power and wealth appear to have grown even <clears throat> further, owning businesses and financial services, real estate, mining, energy, agriculture, winemaking, and more, despite efforts to stay out of the limelight. Further highlighted, <clears throat> highlighting the affinity of these supposed super capitalists for communism, uh, Though a leading member of the Rothschild dynasty, Baron Eric D. Rothschild, publicly came out and helped push the candidacy of Bulgarian Communist Party operative uh, Irina Bakova to lead the United Nations as Secretary General. <clears throat> Deep State Foundations Finance Evil Many of the globalist bigwigs, such as the Rockefellers, Soros, and Rothschild dynasty, and dozens more like them, operate through tax-exempt foundations. Aside from helping shelter the deep state money men for this, from the same onerous taxation they promote, they promote these foundations um, make up another key component of the deep state's financial architecture. The Rockefeller dynasty, for instance, operates a massive network of foundations with many billions of dollars. It includes the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller Family Fund, and more. These, in turn, finance other taxes and foundations used to promote their agenda. Soros, meanwhile, just transferred $18 billion into his Open Society Foundations, which in turn finance hundreds of organizations, foundations, and causes around the world. Other mega foundations controlled by the deep state behind the deep state include the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Tide Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, da, 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 there's the connection, and many more. Each plays a unique but essential role. To understand how crucial these taxes and foundations are in advancing the real deep state's agenda, a simple overview of their actions provides some idea. 
The Soros network of foundations, for instance, provokes everything from globalism and statism to racial hatred and abortion, even funding training programs to teach European pastors promote, to promote the European Union to their congregations. Leaks in recent years have revealed that the Open Society Foundations even fund a wide range of pseudo-Christian groups that aim to corrupt and hijack Christianity and churches. The pro-abortion group, Catholics for Choice, for instance, or training programs for Orthodox pastors in non-EU nations <clears throat> designed to have those spiritual leaders lead their flocks into transnational superstate. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, meanwhile, finances everything anti-American from Planned Parenthood and population control to K-12 Common Core. That's where it comes from. That bastard. Common Core comes from Bill Gates. Pardon my French. Planned Parenthood and population control to K-12 Common Core school standards and efforts to globalize education. The Rockefellers have funded issues from pseudo- pseudo-environmentalism and globalism to statism and feminism, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. <clears throat> Consider the Green Movement. In 2014, a report by the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee exposed the network of billionaires and their foundations that it referred to as the Billionaire Club. i got to move this page up. Hold on, folks. This club, the report said, was responsible for creating AstroTurf Green movement that hijacked vast swaths of federal policymaking apparatus. The explosive 92 page study entitled The Chain of Environmental Command How a Club of Billionaires and Their Foundations Controls the Environmental Movement and Obama's EPA, uh, <clears throat> that's the title, exposes the tactics too. Among other schemes, the network relies on an incredibly sophisticated system of front groups and the exploitation of loopholes and tax codes. The Billionaires Club's machinations also involve a close-knit network of like-minded funders, environmental activists, and government bureaucrats who specialize in manufacturing phony grassroots movements and promoting bogus propaganda disguised as science and news to spreading anti-fossil energy message to unknowing public, the report said. In some cases, the network finds pseudoscientific research, too. The findings are then disseminated by far-left media outlets such as the Huffington Post and Mother Jones that are also receiving billionaire club funds. In one example, a story reported on the Park Foundation's supported anti-fracking study was re reproduced by Park-funded uh, news organizations through Park-funded media collaborations where it was <clears throat> then further disseminated on Twitter by the maker of park back anti-fracking movies, the report found. Three <clears throat> radical outfits in particular were identified as serving key roles in the scheming of this network. The Environmental, the Environmental Grant Makers Association, the Democracy Alliance, and the Divest Invest Movement. <clears throat> Other crucial components of the phony grassroots network involved the financial, in financial and deception Financing the deception and extremism include the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the Schmidt Family Foundation, created by Google boss Eric Schmidt, and the infamous Heinz Family Foundation, largely controlled by former Secretary of State, Secretary of State John Kerry's wife. Really deep, isn't it, folks? 
Okay, where do I leave off? Okay, the abuse of these tax-exempt foundations by deep state behind the deep state to subvert freedom in the United States and worldwide is hardly new. In fact, in 1952, Congress created the Select Committee for to investigate tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations, sometimes known as the Cox Committee and the Reese Committee, after its two chairmen. Among other tasks, it was supposed to look into whether the foundations were supporting communism. It turns out that they were, but the reality was even worse. In an explosive interview with G. Edward Griffin, released in 1991, Norman Dodd, the staff secretary, as director of, of the committee, explained just how serious the threat was and presumably still is. According to Dodd, Atron Gaither, who was the president of the Ford Foundation at the time, summoned Dodd to his office in New York. <clears throat> Dodd said that Gaither asked him off the record why Congress was interested in investigating the activities of foundations such as the Ford Foundation. But before Dodd could even answer, Gaither noted, among other things, that many of those involved in the policymaking at the foundation had been involved in the intelligence agencies, which were filled with communists in high places, and that policy directives for the foundation were coming out of the White House. Then, according to Dodd, Gaither dropped a bombshell. Mr. Dodd, we are here to operate in response to similar directives, this is the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power to so alter life in the United States that it can comfortably be merged with the Soviet Union. Read that sentence again and let it sink in. So we shall do that. Mr. Dodd, we are here to operate in response to similar directives, the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power to alter life in the United States, that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Remember that sentence, let's sink in, okay. Uh, the final report itself was revealing too. Some of the larger foundations had directly supported subversion in the true meaning of the term, namely the process of undermining some of our vitally protective concepts and principles. The investigators found adding the foundations were promoting internationalism and moral relativism. They were actively supporting it. They actively supported attacks upon our social and government system and finance the production of socialism and collectivism ideas, the report continued. Of course, this continues to this day. In his report, Dodd also argued that the mega foundations were weaponizing the government's education system to enable oligarchical collectivism. He noted, too, that the revolution had occurred and that would never have to it never have been possible unless education in the United States had been prepared in advance to endorse it. The corruption of the American education regime uh, stretches back to the progressive humanist John Dewey, uh, not to be confused with Melvin Dewey or the Dewey Decimal System. Um, and it said, who was financed by one of the Rockefellers tax exempt foundation and is today known as the father of American's government, American government's education regime. Today, the Gates, Carnegie, and Rockefeller foundations, among others, continue that work. Oh, Bill Gates, there's a special place in hell for you. Um, and you too, Rockefellers. Other analysts have documented Wall Street and the deep state money men's support for communism and subversion go back even further than that. In his book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, for instance, Stanford historian Anthony Sutton 
exposes the key role played by certain Wall Street financiers in establishing communist tyranny in Russia, financing communism, um, profiting from communism and war. The book shows also that Wall Street forces worked hard to ensure that revolutionary Leon Trotsky could make it to Russia to help the process along. And they even helped the cause of global slavery by building up the Soviet economy and wartime machine. The results of this included the murder of more than 100 million people and the enslavement of billions more. China, Cuba, and other nations were similarly enslaved under communist regimes with the fervent assistance of the deep state money men and government operatives, as the magazine has documented for decades. Today, the deep state and the forces behind it secret and semi-secret organizations and networks as well as the interlinked financial operations and intelligence agencies are closer than ever to their goal of global totalitarianism frequently touted as the new world order however they are closer than ever to being completely exposed as millions of people around the world wake up humanity and a deep state are in a race against time if the deep state wins liberty and self-government die The stakes are high, but everyone can help. Start by reading the articles on the deep state, then get involved. The future of of freedom is on the line, and as any good criminal investigator knows, a good place to start is to follow the money. While the deep state money men have a solid grip on the government, they are not in full control of the state legislatures or even the House of Congress. No, maybe not then. In this way, past time, it is way past time for Congress to hold hearings and investigate. And it says this article originally appeared in the New American Special Report on the Deep State to order the report. Click here. Uh, I gave you the link to get to this. You can do that if you want. Okay. So tonight, what have we done? Oh, my goodness. What have we done? We've exposed a lot of things. We've exposed beginning with. The fact that you can't fight a virus with antibacterials and antiprotozoans, even though Zithromax is an antibacterial and Plaquenil or hydrochloroquine is an antiprotozoic, and they seem to cure the COVID-19. So, and knowing that antibiotics and and protozoics can work in concert with one another and that they kill um, bacteria and protozoans, you have to come to the conclusion that COVID-19 is not a virus. It's more of a, maybe a mixture of uh, bacteria and protozoan, or it's one or the other. But knowing that you can fight some protozoans with antibacterials, and you can fight some antibacterials with antiprotozoics, the conclusion has to be that COVID-19 is not a virus, that it's more akin to the the uh, bacteria that killed 50 to 100 million people back in 2018 and 19. Um, We found out that uh, you can't kill viruses with these two compounds and you can't kill bacteria or protozoans with antivirals. Uh, We found out that uh, bacteria and protozoans are alive, that uh, viruses aren't necessarily alive. They're more of uh, protein chains and and uh, and things that know how to invade cells and I don't know 
you got to wonder if they're alive or not when you know that. <clears throat> or are they manipulated? That's another thing. Um, but seeing that viruses have been around for such a long time, it's hard to say. But who knows? Maybe all the pandemics and everything that have happened in the world were not uh, viruses. Maybe viruses are something that man has invented in the last 50 or 60 or 80 or 100 years. Who knows? Um, we learned that the Spanish flu actually should be called the um, the Kansas flu or, you know, or something of that sort. And it wasn't a flu. It wasn't a virus. And we got asked if the flu was a virus. I know a lot of people when they get flu shots, they still get the flu afterwards. I know some people that when they get the flu shots, they get the flu, you know, and you don't want to even go in with me with the, um, with the vaccinations, uh, because it's a known fact that flu shots have mercury in them as well as other things. And it's starting to even come out that some of them might have fetal cells in them and stuff like that. So, um, we also learned about <clears throat> Frederick L. Gates, that he was the son of Frederick T. Gates. Both of them were involved with the Rockefeller Foundation, that, uh, Frederick L. was the one that injected all those meningococcal, excuse me, um, uh, bacteria into the soldiers before they went overseas, and that's when all hell broke loose. Uh, we learned that uh, Bill Gates is probably in concert with the Rockefeller Foundation, or, or they know of each other and bounce things off of each other at the very least, um, which is very interesting. And we read a whole bunch about uh, secret societies and the deep state of the deep state, uh, those who are <clears throat> paying for the deep state, basically. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that um, <clears throat> I do believe this to be true, that uh, Donald Trump's no idiot. OK, he is no idiot by any means. And um, if if this is true, this is a, a victory that could possibly really tip the balances, so to speak, in our favor. Uh, that piece of information is that Donald Trump has uh started the process of merging the Federal Reserve with the Treasury, which would mean that the Treasury would take over the Federal Reserve and which would mean that our money would be backed by something other than nothing. Um, I have also been watching uh, what's been going on with gold. Uh, <clears throat> the United States has been transferring a lot of gold from other countries into the United States. Uh, what was it the other day? 113,000 uh, tons or something like that of gold from um i think it was i can't remember if it was tons or ounces but i think it was tons um from the swiss uh from switzerland to the united states <clears throat> i learned that the united states owns approximately a quarter of all the world's gold which i never knew before and um which would allow us to go back on the gold standard uh, donald trump may do what kennedy wanted to do he may be able to do that I think that uh, he is actively fighting the deep state. I think that he's got the military behind him and that uh, that the days ahead might be very interesting. I see the Democrats fighting for their lives. Uh, they tried to get Trump with uh, impeachment. That didn't work. They tried to get him with uh, the COVID-19. That's going away. That didn't work. And now they're trying to um, start all these uh, protests and insurrections and sedition, seditious acts around the United States, which I don't believe will work either. Um, <clears throat> this is a man that 
gave up everything to be something for us. And I let's put it this way. If the Democrats hate him, if the leftists hate him, um, and if they're trying to do everything to destroy him, he's got to be on the right track. I see the Democrats uh, being very desperate, wanting to get rid of him and um, hoping and praying that in the 2020 election that uh, many people come to their senses and vote for Donald Trump. I know that uh, the the black community is uh, there are very many blacks that are realizing that the Democrats have had him under a social economic uh, slavery for the last, you know, you count the, minute, the amount of years, you know. Um, they're starting to realize that the uh, the Democrats were in favor of slavery, that the Democrats were um, in favor of John, uh, Jim Crow laws, uh, that the Democrats were responsible for the KKK and actively participated in it, and that they've held them in economic and, and social political slavery for the last 50 years under Lyndon Johnson's New Deal, or Great Society, or whatever you call it. Um, so the blacks are coming around. They're starting to realize that the Democrats have dropped them like a hot potato and have taken up the cause of illegal aliens, thus uh, disenfranchising the blacks. And um, hopefully more of them will wake up and realize this uh, when they see that uh, Trump is on their side with all these protests and that he's going to go after Antifa and hopefully wipe them out like he did with ISIS in uh, Syria. Um Maybe they'll realize that Trump's not a bad guy and he'll they'll totally switch over and the majority of blacks will vote for him. I know a lot of Hispanics are, a lot of Asians are. <clears throat> um, anyway, it's been interesting. It's been almost two hours. We're just short of two and a half minutes of two hours. So I didn't I intended maybe to go shorter or longer, no matter what it took. Um, I think we got everything covered. Got quite of an education, and I, and even though I read some of this stuff, I learned stuff tonight. So take what you've been given tonight and research it and see what you get out of it. And um, and I hope that it, it helps you to realize that uh, uh, we're in a war here. Uh, we're in a hot civil war now. Uh, it was cold for a few years. Now it's hot, and it's going to get hotter. So I pray that uh, the good Lord protects you. Those of you that are on the side of good and um, that the outcome is good. I, um, I hope the best for our audience. I always do. I pray for the best for our audience. And um, I appreciate you guys a lot and ladies. Um, and I just know that uh, we're, we're starting something that is, is going to just perpetuate and go into even better things. And, um, I look forward to Brian coming on more consistently. He's got a lot to say. He's a man that has a wealth of knowledge about many different subjects. He's very passionate about what he talks about, too. So um, what has been a show of three will soon become a show of four. If he is so led to do, Brian will come on um, more often than he's not on. And um, need to keep him in prayer because... uh, he lives in Southern California in Orange County. Like I said, I think, I, no, I said that in the earlier show. And uh, Antifa was on their way down there. And uh, the powers that be in California don't believe in fighting for the citizens of California. They'll bend over backward for illegal aliens and anybody else. 
um, any cause that's not righteous, the the government in California, boy, they're, they'll take them on right away and accept them and finance them and everything else. So I um, need to pray for a change in California. But in the meantime, I pray for my uh, my brother Brian and his family. Um, he's a part of our family. He always has been. And uh, he's, a, he's a real good guy. So keep him in prayer tonight and for the days to come while the scourge is roaming around Southern California and pray that um, the police forces are given the permission to do what they have to do. And unfortunately, what they have to do is to shoot and kill these bastards. And um, I hate to say that, but that's the only only way you're going to straighten this out. These people are bound and determined to destroy this country and to turn it into a communist dictatorship. And we can't let that happen. So um, pray that we have to do what we have to do. So, And uh, I'll pray for the whole country, actually. That uh, the Lord will just give insight and those that are meant to to get it will get it. And those that aren't meant to get it will, (laughs) in a different phrase, get it. Um, So anyway, enough of the rambling on. Uh, It's been great doing this second show tonight. Breeze me up for the next two days. Um, You guys have a wonderful week until we meet you again on Monday night. And if anything else comes up, well, I'll be here. So. God bless you guys, and uh, may he just grant you the desires of your heart, especially the things that he wants you to have, um, and may the things that you need, uh, that you want to have, um, also be granted, but in his will. So, God bless, and have a great week, folks. Good night.